your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 19. If you want to follow along using the Pew Bible, which you can find underneath your chair or the chair in front of you, it's page 456. 456. We come tonight to Psalm 19. Uh, It's a well-known psalm, and there's so much to say uh, with this psalm. But let's ask the Lord to help us before we read the Word. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we come eager to hear from You, knowing that Your Word is living and active. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would pierce our hearts. We pray that Your Word would lead us to a knowledge of who You are and how we are to live in Your world. Lord, would You use this particular passage, this psalm, to show us your great glory, that we would honor you as our God. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, brethren, hear now the word of God again, Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, thus far, God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. Well, in our journey through book one of the Psalms, generally speaking, we've either been in the throes of conflict with David or in his exaltation of praise to the rescuing God as in the previous psalm, Psalm 18. And yet, occasionally in this book, book one, we've emerged from a present crisis to reflect on God's wisdom and majesty. And we see this happen in Psalm 1, which started us out, a wisdom psalm of the two ways, really the blessed way before God and avoiding the way of wickedness. We've seen it in Psalm 8, which was a creation hymn, praising God for His majestic name. And now we see it again, this little 
repose of sorts in Psalm 19. And it's a combination, Psalm 19 is, of creation testifying and wisdom at work. Now, Psalm 19 is famous specifically for its declaration of the two books of God's revelation. There's general revelation, chiefly here, creation bearing witness. General revelation is bigger than creation bearing witness. It's also the providence of God. It's your conscience. But here, creation bearing witness. And then the other book of creation, God's special revelation, namely the role of His Word in shaping the life of the believer. So David is celebrating both the greatness of God, which the heavens proclaim, and the power of God at work through the Holy Scriptures. Now this meditation on God's glory and God's grace worked in his people will move David to desire to live honorably before this magnificent Lord, the covenant God who is, he says, my rock and my redeemer. So David will end praising and yet praying for the transcendent and mighty God to move close to him and make him secure and answer his prayers, to do a great work even within his heart so that his tongue can praise the Lord. Well, the psalm falls into three parts, and that's how we'll consider it. Let's see three things. And we begin with the proclamation of creation in verses 1 to 6. The proclamation of creation. David begins by literally saying, verse 1, the heavens keep recounting the glory of God. Or the heavens are constantly relating the glory of God. In other words, he's saying the sky never ceases to shout a message. And what is that message? It's simple. God is glorious. Imagine in your mind's eye the airplane floating through the sky, painting the message in the clouds. God is glorious. That's the message. Now, the biblical word glory means weighty or substantial, as in important and significant. So the sense here is the heavens constantly show off that God is impressive, that He is a force to be reckoned with, that He possesses undeniable power. And indeed, who can look up and behold the massive moving clouds, the the bright sun, the resplendent moon, the billions of stars, and then fail to stand in awe. The 18th century German-born musician and astronomer, Frederick William Herschel, a man obsessed with telescopes, he once said, an undevout astronomer is mad. That is, he's crazy. How can you look up and fail to see the greatness of God? And yet, of course, we know the natural man, the unrighteous man, makes no time to consider the maker of the heavens. He just carries on in his sin in spite of the evidence of God's transcendent power. And then he suppresses the truth. He pushes it down in unrighteousness, refusing to reckon with God's greatness and his own smallness. Either he won't stop to consider creation's proclamation, or he does only a little reflection, which then leads to a misappropriation of the truth. Namely, as the ancient pagans would do, man would take a slice of something in creation and then attribute it 
to some made-up deity, that, that one thing. We've got a, a God of the rain and a God of the sun and a God of the stars and so on. Or maybe in modern times, the person would consult horoscopes and have an idea of some mystical fate floating around. Or maybe man would give praise to naturalistic materialism as though the celestial bodies in the heavens came about by chance and the grandeur of the heavens is reduced to what I can explain as though the message of God's glory is totally dismissed in its exchange for the glory of man. I'm exalted because I can tell you everything that the heavens are really saying. What the unbeliever won't consider is creation's universal testimony to the one true and living God. That He is sovereign. That He is incomprehensible. That He's incomparable. That He's independent of the creation and over it. W.S. Plummer in his wonderful Psalms commentary, he, he relates the story of Napoleon, you know, a short Frenchman, Napoleon Bonaparte and his men returning from Egypt back to Europe by way of the Mediterranean Sea. And while they're traversing on the waters by night, Napoleon happens to hear his officers discussing atheism and avowing their commitment to it. But pointing at the stars, Napoleon said, Who made all these? Atheism had no answer. And yet atheism continues to be practiced. Man goes on in his evil, his blindness to the truth, and yet the witness of creation rings out. And it's a witness that those who've been rescued from the darkness of sin by grace, that's us, we can see. We can see that God is glorious. And it should move us to praise. Indeed, David recognizes that the sky proclaims God's handiwork. That is, that the sky shouts and shouts and shouts of all the things that God has done. And we see it and we stand amazed. Now, we could contemplate God's handiwork as in the raw acts of His power like thunderstorms and tornadoes or hurricanes and hail. But God's handiwork isn't limited to the loud and ferocious. His handiwork, or more literally, the work of His hand, highlights His intimate care, the meticulous attention that He gives to detail. Was it not His hand that took the dust of the earth like a master potter and then shaped it into a man? Did He not redeem us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm taking us to Himself? David will say, and Jesus will quote from the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. My times are in your hands. Or how about Psalm 139? Joe is praying this psalm. We're knit together in our mother's womb. The psalmist is contemplating there's nowhere you could go to escape the Lord. And if I were to take the wings of the morning and dwell on the othermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You see, God's hand is both tender and precise while being powerful. And how do the skies proclaim these things? Well, brothers and sisters, just consider the intricately painted sunset or, or the mists catching prisms of light to make an array of color or the rainbow itself, 
or the ordered pattern of the stars, uh, the massive rising clouds and then those wispy clouds floating around the nearly obscured blazing blue sky. These these are awe-inspiring, aren't they? Last year, Michelle and I were in California. I was speaking at a Banner of Truth conference on the West Coast, not too far from San Diego, and Michelle and I took some time to enjoy the Pacific Coast for a few days. And one of the things that struck me was the sunsets out over the water. How even the godless go to see it. Droves of people were coming down to the beach to watch the sunset, and and it was brilliant. Folks in restaurants stop what they're doing to praise the glorious colors. They have an ode to the sun. We know the truth. Watching the last beams of light fall and seeing beauty. And it was made by the Lord. How can we fail to see the divine artistry and praise God? Nevertheless, in spite of the pagan and what he doesn't see, the testimony of creation and in the precision of it, it doesn't stop. Verse 2, day to day, pours out speech. The message of the skies is like a fountain, constantly bubbling up. No day passes without the evidence of God's power. And then at night, night to night, reveals knowledge. Even when men are sleeping, the heavens can't stop praising. And yet, while the skies constantly speak, verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words. Now, how is that? How can declarations ring forth and then nothing be heard? Well, it's because the heavens don't make an audible sound. However, the psalmist says, verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth. Or the sense could be, if you catch the footnote in the ESV, their line goes out into all the earth. And the sense would be like a measuring line where you're marking out a boundary the area over which the sky is to testify, which would be all the earth. And then the voice is going out. So there's no voice, verse 3, but their words go out to the end of the earth. What are we to make of that? Well, it's a paradox. The heavens speak without actually speaking. Now, how does that work? We might call this nonverbal communication. My dog is a master at it. She has no words. But if I'm eating, she's there with undistracted focus, peering up at me with these big brown eyes. And what's the message? It's loud and clear. Feed me. It is impossible to miss what she's saying. Well, likewise, the mute creation, the heavens themselves are clearly communicating. And the sky is saying, do you see? How could this majestic scene be here without a maker? How could these stars be set in order like Orion's belt stringing this line without a heavenly designer to put it in place? And then as an illustration of the silent testimony, David points us to one particular aspect of creation, to just one created thing in verses 4-6, to and it's the sun. Now, all the pagans worshipped the sun. And sun worship would even make its way among the people of God. We're just reading as a group of guys on Friday morning the book of Ezekiel, and there's a 
stirring scene in Ezekiel chapter 8 where God's people turn their back on the temple to focus on worshiping the sun. Amnon-Ra, you may remember that name from Egypt. It's the god of the sun. But David is saying this ball of blazing brightness in the heavens is just a servant of God. God gives the sun a dwelling place, a tent in the heavens, verse 4, and He gives the sun a job to do, verse 5, to run its course across the heavens and to do it with joy, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber to go get married. He's decked out. He's got his best threads on. That's the sense of the sun running its course across the sky. And from earth, from our perspective as we stand on the earth, that's exactly what it looks like. David isn't trying to give us precision about cosmological movements in our solar system. He's not arguing for geocentrism as opposed to a heliocentric understanding of the skies. He's not interested in the science of it all. He's saying, as I stand here, right here on the earth, the sun looks like it's running a course across the sky. And the sun doesn't get tired of this continual race. It doesn't say, you know what? I'm just going to lay in bed today. I don't feel like doing it. No, it never slows down as though it's depressed or weary of the duty. There is joy in the course of the sun. The sun comes out of his tent in the morning, eager to perform the labor, and it goes across the heavens, carrying out its circuit. And all thereby, verse 6, are made to feel its heat. In other words, no one can ignore the witness of the sun. Now, David could have used countless illustrations of God's power and magnificence in his world, but the point is the sun, with its power to give you light, to make crops grow, to scorch the land or burn you, the warming light of the sun that cheers you with its daily return, it is a witness that God is worthy of our praise, that God is mighty and should be honored. Are we praising God? W.S. Plummer again gives a personal illustration. He writes, in October, in the year of our Lord, 1838, love to read a sentence like that. He says, a number of us stood on the top of Blue Ridge at Rockfish Gap in Virginia. I have no idea where Rockfish Gap is, but I've been on the Blue Ridge Parkway and maybe some of you have as well. And he says, we stood there, again, October 1838, just after the sun had risen. Dense fogs covered the valleys, but left exposed the tops of the high hills for perhaps 40 miles eastward. And our great elevation by means of the reflected rays of the sun, discovered to us below a sea of glory studded with beautiful islands. You see what he's seeing. The sun is rising. Clouds are covering the mountains. And there's just the tops of the mountains there like islands in a sea of fog. And he worshiped. Maybe you can remember a particular moment in your life. Going to the Grand Canyon and seeing it. Niagara Falls watching an eclipse, lying beneath the stars. The question is, were we moved to worship? I wonder, brethren, if we pause to consider the testimony of creation. We're at a disadvantage in the 21st century. 
our lives move at a frenetic pace. We like instant food, soundbite news, and quick responses to our text messages. Do we take the time to think about the birds and the flowers and the stars and the weather and what they're telling us about God? Creation is speaking. Are we listening? I have to confess to you, I am not very good at stopping to smell the roses, to look up at the sky. But I do live with a family of artists, and something that they've taught me is beauty is everywhere. And creation is saying our God is wise, He's good, He's powerful, He's detailed, and He's beyond any limit that our puny mind could possibly put on Him. Indeed, when we compare ourselves, us weak and frail creatures to the Lord, He is great. He is incomparable. He's transcendent. He's full of strength. He possesses infinite understanding. And the daily course of the sun says, see the providence of God governing all of His creatures and all of their actions at all times for His glory. Indeed, how indebted we are to this God. Because He's not only our Creator, He's our Sustainer. So we should praise Him in song. We should praise Him by studying His works. We should praise Him by living for His honor, considering His weightiness that's there at every single moment for us to see. May the Lord give us grace to marvel at Him and His works. If you need a little help, we, we sang a new hymn at the start of the service. Joseph Addison's 117, paraphrasing Psalm 19. Go read it again the poetry, and see if it drives you to worship. Well, secondly with me, we turn now from the book of creation, so to speak, to the book of Scripture itself. And if God is seen in His works in creation, how much more is He seen in His Word? The place with a living and active voice where God is speaking. He's communicating to us exactly who He is and what He is pleased to do. And notice as we start this section, this is easy to miss, Notice the change in God's name. In verses 1 to 6, we considered God, capital G-O-D. This is the generic word for God in Hebrew, El. It means the mighty or the cosmic ruler. Just as an aside, it's one of the creators of the Superman character, who were a couple of Jews, by the way. They stole as an act of blasphemy, calling this alien visiting earth. Do you remember his name? Superman, Kalel, which in Hebrew is the voice of God. But I digress. El is the shortened form of Elohim, the creator God of Genesis 1. But as we come to verses 7 and following, now we're hearing of Yahweh. This is all caps Lord. And this is the name that God gave to Moses as the Lord revealed himself in his covenant. And that makes sense as we move from the book of creation to the book of the Word, because while all mankind sees creation, God has particularly given His covenant people His Word and made Himself known to them there. What was the greatest privilege or advantage of being a Jew? When Paul makes a list of the advantages of being a Jew in Romans 3, he says, first, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What a blessing. And of course, here we are, a bunch of Gentiles, 
But we, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, have been brought near by His blood. We were strangers to the covenants of the promise, but now we're fellow citizens and members of God's household. That means the blessing of the Word is for us. And maybe chief among the blessings is that while creation testifies to God's power, His heaviness, His exaltation, the revelation God gives in the Word says to us that the transcendent Creator has come near. Yahweh is the with you God. He's not at a distance. He can be known. We can experience His power working within us because that's what He's doing by means of His Word. For notice, David is describing the Word, starting here in verse 7, and then he also relates to us what the Word does in the people of God. So what is God's Word like? What are the attributes of Yahweh's Word? There are six of them. And we're going to go through them. Verse 7, first David says, the law, this is Torah, which means instruction or doctrine, the law of the Lord is perfect. It is whole or complete. The sense is, on the one hand, Yahweh's instruction is flawless. No defects. But on the other hand, he's saying, Yahweh's law is everything we need. It's complete. It's not lacking in anything. Peter will say in 2 Peter 1 that God by His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Where are those all things pertaining to life and godliness found? He's granted them to us in His precious and very great promises. You have everything you need in His Word. Peter is just elaborately saying God has given us what we need to live for Him, to guide us, to teach us, to comfort us, to train us. He's given it in the Word. We can know God through His incorruptible and sufficient Word. And then God takes this flawless Word and He uses it in a particular way to revive or restore the soul. Where trouble saps us of our energy, where calamity deflates us, the Word, the teaching Word, showing us the promises of God, showing us the declarations of God's grace, that invigorates us. God's truth conveying who He is and what He has done spiritually comes upon us to awaken the exhausted, to press us on further. The Lord gives strength to the weary soul. How does He do that? Well, the Word without blemish tells us of the God who is there. The God who has worked for our salvation. The God who holds us by the hand. The God who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. The God who rides the heavens to our help. The God who never ceases to be our refuge and strength. When trouble comes, Yahweh is easy to find. His Word is near. Do you want strength in your soul? Do you want reinvigoration in your battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you want energy to press through the calamity, whatever it is you're facing? Come to the Word and learn of the covenant God who gives you all you need. And have you found this to be true in preaching? 
Have you sat under the preaching of God's Word as it's come upon your soul in power and felt like you were languishing and then the Word came and it just made you alive. It just gave you fresh energy. It put a pep in your step that you would serve the Lord. Do you want that? That's what the Word does. And then secondly, David says, verse 7b, the testimony of the Lord is sure or reliable. Testimony is sometimes used to refer to the Ten Commandments specifically. So commentators will often say the Lord's testimony conveys warning. And these certain words of warning give the simple stability. They steer Him away. They make wise the simple. Now, the simple one in the Bible is not just the stupid. It's the the naive, the inexperienced. And such a person can easily go off track. But if temptation comes to us and aims to pull the immature away, pull us towards trouble, the Word grounds us with clear instruction. It makes the simple wise. Do we want stability? Do we want clear guidance in a world that is an ethical mess where everyone does what is right in his own eyes? Where can we find that type of surety? It is not in the counsel you hear in this world. Just follow your heart. No, it's in the Word. Don't follow your heart. Proverbs 28, he who follows his own heart is a fool. Look at Scripture. This is a sure word. And then thirdly, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, that is the definite rules of the Lord, His authoritative declarations, are right. God's rules are right in the sense of pure and upright. Now, we all know the unbelie- with the unbeliever, the dogmatism of Yahweh frustrates. The wicked hate God's meticulous commands. So, Psalm 2, what do they seek to do with God's commands? They aim to throw off His fetters from them. They reject His authority with the intention of going their own way. With a famous song of Sinatra to back it up. I did it my way. The theme song of hell. Now, we want to do it God's way. Now, brethren, we're all by nature going our own way, according to Isaiah 53. But when God's grace awakens us, we suddenly have a completely different view of God's precepts. Now these straight rules rejoice our heart because God is cutting a straight path for us and we can say with Jesus, I delight to do your will, O God. The believer sees that the precepts of the Lord are good. They're not burdensome as though our God is some kind of killjoy aiming to keep us from having any fun. Isn't that how the devil portrays the Lord? He doesn't want you to have any fun. He rules out everything fun. No, God's precepts are there to protect us. And they teach us the way of blessedness, which is another way to say happiness. You want to go the happy way? Delight in the law of the Lord. His law shows us the happy life. The world is selling to us sensuality, sexual immorality, wealth, possessions, various passing pleasures as the key to your happiness. When have you read a story of a celebrity that was happy following that stuff? Now, the story you get is, what happened to so-and-so? And it's always the same. Rehab, you know, divorces, devastation. But Yahweh, with His Word, rejoices our hearts. 
because He cuts a straight path for us in a world of trouble. He cuts a path in the wilderness, doesn't He? Without that path that He's given us, we would be lost and we would be doomed. Fourthly, verse 8, the commandment, singular, the commandment of the Lord is pure. The sense here is the sum of what God requires and not just a particular directive. The totality of God's commandment is pure. There's no imperfection or pollution. And therefore, it enlightens the eyes. God guides us precisely, unlike the faulty wisdom of man. God's commandment gives us fresh vigor about the way we should go. We're directed and we're refreshed. Do you want understanding about what to do in your ethical quandary? Do you want to be enlivened and revitalized in a world of draining confusion? Come to the Scriptures. Read, learn, see how to walk. Fifthly, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. Now here David doesn't give us another synonym for the Word, but rather the believer's response to the Word. The fear of the Lord, that is to live with an awareness of God, an awe of Him, and a readiness to obey Him. This trusting reverence leading to obedience, David says, is clean. It's unsullied or undefiled. And this fear goes on enduring forever. It's never out of style in God's eyes to walk in the fear of the Lord. It will never be the wrong choice, never be the wrong choice, to stand in awe of the Lord and do what He says. And then sixthly, verse 9b, the rules of the Lord, that is His rulings in every area of life, the specific application of principles, the rules of the Lord are true. It's not just that the overarching commandment is flawless, but if you get down into the details, you find some kind of corruption. No, there's no falsehood in the Word all the way down to the smallest matters. Every direction is righteous. And because all these attributes of the Word, verse 10, the Word is to be desired. That's an affectionate word, but it's also literally the word to covet. Now, brethren, there are things that we must not desire or covet. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Eve coveted and led to death. The stuff in Jericho, which, which Achan coveted and he was put to death. You're not to covet another man's wife, which David did, and it led to all kinds of trouble. The Lord has called us to beware of what our hearts seek. But the Word, the Word's truth, the Word's benefits, should be deeply coveted, should be craved, should be desired. God's Word should be valued more than gold and sought after more than the satisfaction of your sweet tooth. Is that the way that we desire the Word of God? Craving to know Him and what He requires. Do we want soul-reviving, heart-rejoicing, eye-enlightening truth? Take time to read the Word. Why? Because there are benefits. By it, your servant is warned, David says, verse 11. The false way is blocked off. And then in keeping his particular rules, there's great reward. Blessings come to the, to the obedient. Now, we know we don't earn God's favor with our obedience. God comes to us in grace. We don't go to Him to get His grace. But having obeyed the Lord, we know blessing. 
what are those blessings? Some try to define them as health and wealth. One look at our suffering Savior would tell you that can't possibly be true because He always obeyed and He seemed to get a lot of trouble. The blessings are spiritual blessings. The sense of God's favor, His peace, stability, the bearing of fruit, communion with God, assurance of His love, and then there's the life to come. Do you want a sense of God's favor upon you? His nearness to comfort you? Walk by the light of the Word. Know the blessings of the faithful. And then finally see with me, and this will be a brief point, the prayer of God's servant. David asks, in light of everything he said, verse 12, who can discern his errors? And these literally ask the Lord, acquit me, that's a legal word, acquit me of hidden faults. David recognizes that he has sin that's hidden. And he doesn't mean his errors are hidden from other people. He's thinking about his own blind spots the various areas in his life where his sin isn't obvious to him in his thoughts, in his actions, in his speech. We all know that cultures and historical periods have blind spots. So is it a shocking thing that we ourselves would have blind spots? If sin is inherently deceitful, and if it deceives me even at the level of my heart, can sin not fool me? to cloud my judgment so that I don't think I'm sinning, but I actually am, or I'm just totally unaware that I'm conducting myself with sin. This statement of David indicates we have no idea how sinful we really are because we all have faults that we don't even detect. And we need cleansing from those too. Remembering this, the blindness that we have to sin, the ignorance about what is sinful, it should really rescue us from any notion of perfectionism. How could you possibly be perfect when you don't even know how much you sin? Even the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life will say, I am the chief of sinners. Sin remains. We have hidden sin, even as we're going, growing in grace. But praise God that there is a willingness in the Lord to acquit us of our hidden faults. But how does he do it? Because he's a God of strict justice. Well, for David, he knows there's a sacrificial system. For us, we know beyond that. That's but a type and shadow of a work that Jesus will accomplish as the Lamb of God to take away our sin, all of it, what is seen and what is unseen. This is the folly, isn't it, of the famous doctrine doctrine of auricular confession that you could go into a confessional booth and confess your sin and only then could you receive forgiveness? Do you think you can actually remember and account for every sin that you've committed? You don't even know all of your sin. Then what are you supposed to do? Praise God. There's forgiveness from the stuff you don't even know to ask for. But you can at least pray, Lord, would you cleanse me of my hidden faults? And then David prays, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Brethren, we need restraining grace to be kept from obstinate transgressions. The kinds of things that just arrogantly trample God's clear word. It's one thing to be surprised by sin, and that happens to us. It's a whole different course of action to daringly do what we know is forbidden, and then to be stuck and ruled by prideful, enslaving sins. That's the danger Paul's warning us about in Romans 6. 
we're dead to sin in Christ, alive to God, and now we're to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we would obey. It's lust. Sin wants to reign. Sin's been taken off the throne. Sin wants to get back on the throne of your heart. Further, sin wants to obscure the freedom given by grace and thereby encourage you to run in rebellion and not walk in the light of the Lord. But if we throw off the restraint of God's law, sin will move us towards apostasy. Can't we see that in Saul, the king before David, and this wicked man who wouldn't listen to God and dies in darkness? There was a prideful resistance to submitting to God and sin just went on in a high-handed fashion. David would have been remembering that. Keep me from that, O Lord. So that, verse 13, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression or supreme rebellion. Now obviously, to be blameless, as we've noted several times in the Psalms, is clearly not perfection. David's just been talking about hidden faults. But it's a freedom from forsaking God as a pattern of sin. We don't want to discover at some point in our future that we're acting like the children of Israel in the wilderness. We're kind of sort of acknowledging that God is doing stuff in our midst. You know, He's giving us manna from heaven and water from a rock. But then we still deliberately cry out for Egypt as though God had no power and no wisdom. We all need to pray like this. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Don't think, dear friends, that your faithfulness is so strong that you can never slip. Remember how Paul puts it? He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We need preserving grace. That's why the hymn writer writes, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Keep me to the end. And then David closes with this conscious reflection of God's grace in his life. He prays, let the words of my mouth, my outward speech, and the meditation of my heart, the inward evidence of my devotion, let them be acceptable in your sight. Acceptability is a sacrifice word. So David is saying, may my speech and the very thoughts of my heart arise to you as a sacrifice. Instead of being dominated by sin, let me be consecrated to you. For why? For you are, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Do you see, David is aware of amazing grace and he wants to live his life as a debtor to God's mercy alone. Well, that ought to characterize our praying too. Lord, I give myself to you. I give my words to you. I give the inward reflections of my heart because you're my God and my Savior. If we put all this together, what are we seeing? God's glory in creation should move us with awe. God's glory in His Word should lead us to crave it and obey Him. And may we pray for grace to cleanse us and grace to cause us to stand. May we learn from David how to praise and how to pray. Brother, let's pray together. Lord our God, we stand in awe of You. You are so great beyond our every comprehension. Lord, Your power is evident in the heavens, but Your power is also evident in us as You have brought Your Word to bear upon our souls that we would be made alive with Christ. You've done it through the Word. 
And Lord, we pray that that same word would be the word we crave because your word is the means by which we are being saved. We're being sanctified. Lord, use your word to enlighten our eyes and make us wise and rejoice our hearts. Help us to walk in the light of your precepts. And Father, we pray that you would powerfully preserve us against the dominating influence of sin. Keep us, O Lord, from dishonoring you and forgive us even of our hidden faults. For we want to live in awe of you as our great Redeemer. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.